And now from 1983, it's time for part one of Goon Abroad, a wonderful collection of reminiscences from Sahari Seacombe. When I decided to call this collection of pieces Goon Abroad, I meant abroad in the sense of being out and about. As I say about a certain Sunday newspaper, all of human life is here. Well, not all, but the odd gleanings from the factory floor of life. I just thought I'd put the record straight. Right then, now for a trip down memory lane. To television viewers upon whose retinas I am forever etched against a background of 250 singing Welsh miners, it might come as a surprise to learn that I cannot speak Welsh. Indeed, in the Dockland area of Swansea, in which I was raised, we were more familiar with Asian dialects than with the language of the Cymru. I was born in Danagraig Terrace, overlooking the docks, and when I was four, the family moved to a house on a new council estate about half a mile away, but still within the sound of clanking steam engines and ship sirens. Behind us was a large recreation ground, and from the safety of our iron railings, my brother and I could watch the strivings of our local football and cricket teams. Vicarious sportsmen, we were never members of any of the sides. I was too short-sighted and too often stricken with childhood illnesses. And Fred was too busy studying for his role as a propagator of the gospel in far-off lands. My father, who had played soccer, rugby and cricket at various times in his life, would explain the finer details of the games to us. See now, boys. If Charlie Thomas had not tripped the referee when Glyn Evans was about to kick Jackie Griffiths in the face, the goal scored by Sammy Thomas, who was really offside at the time, would have been disallowed. The jerseys of the teams were never regulation, and it was difficult to tell which side was defending which goal. An uncle of mine, wearing his own football jersey, once scored four goals for St Stephen's Athletic before they found out that he was only a spectator. Fortunately for St Stephen's, the goals were not disallowed because it was discovered that the opposing side had three extra forwards. They only found that out when at half-time the team manager was three pieces of lemon short. I was never very keen on soccer. It was too complicated for me. But cricket, ah, cricket, I loved the game. I would watch eagerly from my bedroom window as Grenfell Park first eleven took the field. Actually, there were twelve. They had no dressing rooms. The players would change into their whites or grey flannels on the boundary, and many a pleasantly shocked clucking of tongues would come from behind half-drawn blinds as elderly ladies watched the shirt tails flapping in the breeze. It was lovely to lie in bed recovering from chicken pox and listen to the sound of bat on ball and the occasional crash of glass as Bert Woodward opened his shoulders and hit old Mr Orchard's greenhouse again. We were a strong, church-going family. My brother and I were in the choir at St Thomas Church from the time that we were seven years of age. And for a long time, owing to the fact that I was so short, myself and David Porter, who was even shorter, and that rhymes, led the choir from the vestry. It was quite a big church, built in 1860-odd in Welsh Gothic style, and had very beautiful stained-glass windows, through which shafts of light would shine upon the choir stalls on summer Sunday evenings, and I would bathe self-consciously in them. I would listen with apparent concentration to the droning sermon, all the time a word of Mildred Jones watching me from the second pew, and hoping that she couldn't see the piece of adhesive tape holding the bridge of my spectacles together. Then, when the vicar turned in the pulpit and announced the next hymn, I would leap smartly to my feet and sing loudly and clearly, if it happened to be one of my favourites. I would throb with emotion in Abide With Me, toss my head gaily and now thank we all our God, 
and looked suitably parched in as pants the heart for cooling streams. The choirmaster, come organist, from his commanding view of the choir boys in the mirror above the organ keyboard, used to say that I could put more into Rock of Ages with my face than the whole of the Morrison Orpheus with their 200 male voices. I was also capable of hanging on to an amen until both myself and the vicar had gone purple. There was a great sigh of relief from the whole of the choir when my voice began to change and I was transferred to pumping the organ. This was a task which I performed with varying degrees of energy. The trick was to watch a little lead weight suspended from a cord which was attached to some mechanism inside the organ and which moved above and below a mark penciled on the side of the instrument. If the weight went above the mark, you had to pump the wooden handle like mad to keep the air going and bring the weight down again. I remember one very warm evening falling asleep during the sermon on my little bench behind the organ. The vicar had finished his sermon and declared that the next hymn would be Fight the Good Fight. The organist, head back and pedalling furiously, pounded out the first few chords with majestic grandeur, then wailed to a stop like a punctured set of bagpipes. I was subsequently put on to painting the drain pipes outside the vestry. Christmas Eve used to be great fun for the choir. We would all go down to the seamen's mission at the docks and sing carols for them. One Christmas, when it came to my turn to sing Silent Night, I curled up and died inside as the clear treble I delivered at practice degenerated into an uncertain croak. I was mesmerised by the mass of faces before me and suddenly, in a desperate attempt to hide, I snatched off my glasses. The result was most comforting. I couldn't distinguish anything in front of me and with a new confidence, I sang the rest of my solo as if to myself. Since then, I've always performed without my spectacles. The illusion to a short-sighted person like myself of being removed from the rest of the world is most welcome, especially on a big, empty stage facing a big, empty audience. My father would do a turn at these concerts, always unwillingly. The real star of the family, though, was my sister, Carol. From a very early age, she displayed all the manifestations of future stardom. She was pretty and had a highly developed sense of comedy. In all the local talent competitions, she was always in the prize money, and I'm sure that if she'd kept it up, she would have done extremely well in the profession. She suddenly gave it all up during the war, for no apparent reason, and has no theatrical aspirations whatever today. Most of my father's side of the family were keen amateur performers. My Aunt Marjorie used to play the piano in Woolworths in Swansea, and for years played in the local orchestra. Cyril, my father's brother, was a great inspiration to us all. He could play the musical saw. He used to get an ordinary saw, place it between his legs, and get lovely soprano-like notes out of it by beating it with a large drumstick. How he managed to do so without inflicting serious injury upon himself, I shall never know. Then there was my Aunt Marjorie's husband, George Charles, who played drums for years with the Cascassais band of the Langdon Bay Hotel, and was also a fine tap dancer. He even taught me a few basic time steps, which I remember to this day. We used to go out into the garden of my grandparents' home in William Street and dance on a proper tap mat he had had since the days when he was a pro himself. For hours he would try to teach me how to flick my foot to get that double tap sound, and I would hop about with all the grace of a penguin. <laughs> they were happy days indeed. At night, I shared a bed with my older brother. In such close proximity, one tends to find out quite a lot about one's companion's nocturnal habits and eccentricities. My brother had one particular gift which I envied, 
an ability to regurgitate his supper. He would lie there in our communal kip, contentedly munching away at the fish and chips which he had consumed half an hour previously. Every time I tried to do the same, the consequences were dire in the extreme. However, there was one thing which I was able to do, and he was not. This was a knack of deciding what I would dream about beforehand, and, composing myself for sleep, I would drift into my chosen fantasy at will. At the time, I was a great Tarzan fan, and he figured largely in my predetermined nightly adventures. We had little money to spare. Sometimes it ran so low, we'd have to stoop to pick it up. But we had fun as a family, and we were rich in affection for each other. My mother was really the head of the family, although she always let my father think that he was. Wait until your father comes home, she would admonish us. Wait until your mother gets back from shopping, my father would say, hiding behind his paper. My mother was a great one for shop window fuddling, as she called it. She would wander around the large stores comparing prices, clicking her tongue as she handled the merchandise, and all the time behind her I would walk, wide-eyed at the goods on display, trailing the stout, empty basket. It was while I was on one of these shopping expeditions with my mother that I first noticed the Christmas present to end all Christmas presents. It was almost as big as I was. It was a gigantic Christmas stocking, packed with goodies, which hung from wires in the window of a grocer's shop in Portenard Road, Swansea, when I was about seven years old. Grand raffle for this magnificent stocking. Tickets, threepence each, obtainable inside, to be drawn on Christmas Eve, for regular customers only, said a poster outside. I stood with my nose pressed against the shop window, looking upwards in awe at the glittering prize. It was so big that a large selection box of chocolates fitted easily into the toe. And through the pink mesh of the stocking, I could see incredible things like a hornbeat train and a big torch and at least two boys' annuals. Other highly desirable items, designed to drive a boy out of his mind, were hinted at behind the holly and red ribbon which decorated the outside of the stocking. I remained transfixed at the window, and was only removed by ma'am after a prolonged struggle. Come on, Harry, she said. We are not regular customers. That did it. When we got home, I went into a decline, refusing to eat, a rare rebellion for me, and generally making a nuisance of myself. After a short debate, my parents decided that perhaps if I behaved myself and came down off the roof, they might consider registering as customers and buying a few raffle tickets. Win or lose, it was to be my Christmas present. I missed the heavy wink my father gave my mother. I became a model child from that moment on, being polite to my brother and sister, passing the sugar without spilling it, saying please and thank you, and generally making a nuisance of myself. All my pocket money went on tickets for the raffle, and not a day went by without my face being pressed against the shop window. I was actually beginning to make an impression on the glass. I would check the contents of the stocking as well as I could to make sure that nothing had been removed examined the Hornby train for signs of rust, and be in a constant fret that the chocolate in the selection box might melt before the draw. I had twelve tickets in my hot, sticky hand as I stood with my mother in the sawdust to the packed grocer's shop on Christmas Eve. They had put all the tickets in a biscuit tin covered with red paper, and a little girl was lifted onto the counter to make the draw. Why can't I pick the ticket, I thought. I could have found any one of my counterfalls without looking. I knew the numbers by feel. The little girl, simpering, rummaged around in the tin, helped on by cries of, Pick mine! Pick mine! 
I had a loud voice even then. She pulled out the crumpled pink slip and handed it to Mr. Roberts, the grocer. Three of my tickets were pink. He straightened it out. The winning number for this wonderful Christmas prize is... Mr. Roberts paused, taking full advantage of the occasion. Get on with it! My mother put her hand over my mouth. One hundred and thirty-six. I didn't have to look. I knew all my numbers, and that wasn't one of them. No Hornby train, no selection box, no boys' annuals. Without waiting to see who had won, I ran out of the shop and cried all the way home. In my own stock in the following morning, I had a watch with a luminous dial and a boy's annual and a torch with three different coloured heads. But it took me a long time to get over my disappointment. As a matter of fact, I'm still not over it. You can keep your super Christmas presents, his and her golf clubs, Sunningdale for him and Wentworth for her, 18-carat gold models of Battersea Power Station or whatever. I'd rather settle for that stocking in Roberts's window. The Hornbreed train alone would be worth a fortune now.